This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash richtakeonsports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 61. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever platform that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. There are many factors which can determine someone's success in life, but without perseverance, all of the others, they don't even matter. And our guest this episode is the epitome of continuing to push through in life, and that's Mark Schlereth, who's lovingly referred to as Stink. Even as an unheralded offensive guard at the University of Idaho, he would become a three-time Super Bowl champion, playing 12 years in the NFL with the Washington Redskins and the Denver Broncos. Now, before you knew him on ESPN and ESPN Radio, and now as a football analyst with Fox Sports, he earned two Pro Bowl appearances in 1991 and 1998 and would be named to the Denver Broncos' 50th anniversary team and was also inducted into the University of Idaho Athletics Hall of Fame in 2008. And now, episode 61 with Mark Schlereth. Hey, good morning, Mark. Morning. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day and out of your walk, and it's an honor grabbing some time with you. But I, I have to say, it feels like it feels weird to say Mark because I think I only know you as Stink. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty much. You know, I always I always joke around that if my phone rings and somebody says Mark, we're acquaintances. If somebody says Stink, we're friends. So uh, <laughs> it'll be it'll be interesting. Maybe by the end of this conversation think it'll work for you. I'm hoping so. I hope I get to that point where I can call you Stink. Now, I have to ask, though, now, does your nickname Stink, does it fall into that antiphrasis category where it means the opposite, like calling a big guy tiny or a bald guy curly? Or is there some literal meaning behind your nickname of why you're called Stink? Well, you know, there's, I always say there's the truth and then there's the good story. And um, and both of them, you know, basically are the reason that I have the, you know, been dubbed stink. One thing about nicknames, and it's always funny because, you know, if you give yourself a nickname, you know, the guy that says, hey, call me killer, you know, that guy is a toolbox. Like, he gave himself <laughs> that nickname, you know, and so nobody respects that. So most of the times, nicknames are given to you by your friends, and the way guys operate is that, you know, we spend all kinds of time around each other, giving each other grief and and basically busting each other's chops. And that's how you know guys love each other. Like, in a locker room environment, that's that's a, a show of affection. You know, it's kind of a backwards way we do it. So uh, the whole stink thing, the truth of the matter is, is my, da- or my sister was actually a, a teacher, still is, but she taught at a, um, a, a village in Alaska called Akiachuk, Alaska, right on the cusp of Quim River. And the very first run of salmon during the course of the salmon season, 
the native folks would dip net the salmon and pull out, you know, hundreds, thousands of salmon, cut off the heads of the salmon, bury those heads in the ground in a pit they would dig, and then they would dig those heads up weeks later and eat them rotten, and they called them stink heads. And so when I was a rookie with the Washington Redskins, I was telling that story, and from that point forward, it was like, bam, I'm stinkhead. And that's, <laughs> that's how it, that's how the whole nickname started. And then it, it perpetuated, that nickname was perpetuated. My second year in the league, um, we were playing a, um, I was a starter, but I was the youngest player as the starter on the Hogs. And so we're playing a game in DC. It's a, you know, hot, sultry night. It's, uh, the third preseason game. So we're going to play three quarters back in those days. Um, that's what we used to do. But I was the first guy up until somebody got hurt. And so I play my three quarters, and I'm sitting on the bench with the rest of the offensive linemen, and I have to go. I mean, I just have to go. And so I just empty my bladder while I'm sitting on the bench, and the guys are getting, I'm like, oh, my God, what's wrong with you? You know, and I'm laughing because I just thought it was kind of funny. And then all of a sudden – one of the offensive linemen that was in the game got hurt, and they're like, stink, you're up. you got to play center. So I jump off off the bench, and I just literally emptied my bladder, so I am drenched. And um, and Stan Humphreys is our backup quarterback, and I ran to the sideline. He's like, give me some uh, warm-up snaps. So he gets behind me. He's like, wait, wait, I snapped the ball to him. It's just a splash. It was like bath water, you know? And he's like, oh, my God, get him a towel. He's soaking wet and blah, blah, blah. And from that point forward, that cemented the name Stink. Like, there was no there's no turning back from that nickname after that. Of course not. After that, I, I mean, you are lovingly known as Stink from that point moving forward, without a doubt. Now, how could you not get to the restroom, though? <laughs> well, I was just sitting on the bench. So, like, I wasn't going to leave the game in the, in the fourth quarter. It had a whole fourth quarter. And so, I mean, that's that, that happens on the sidelines more than probably anybody would care to admit. So, you know, it's just kind of the way it goes sometimes. I mean, I, I always figured that with all my injury history and everything else, even as a young player, you know, I was fairly miserable. So, I was, like, was going to be uh, doubly miserable by holding it. So, I just used to go. So, you're talking about more than one occurrence then? Oh, yeah. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> that was, for me, that was just kind of... I was like, oh, well, whatever. It doesn't really matter. It's like, uh, I've heard it's sterile. So there you go. We just move on. You know, That's right. It's all good. It is sterile. Yeah. Yes, it is. So I don't know <laughs> if this is uh, an Alaskan thing, that this is what people in Alaska do, just because that's a way to stay warm. But growing up in Anchorage, Alaska, what was your childhood like then? And when did sports become a passion for you? Yeah, you know what? Um, I, I think it's a lot like anybody's childhood, you know, other than you're in the winter eight months of the year. So that part kind of stunk. But when you when you grow up in it, you don't know any better, right? This is the way the world works. So you learn to play and you learn to do all the things you do that anybody else does, but you do it in a snowsuit and snow boots. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the way we operated. So um, I always loved Playing was a really good athlete, and it's interesting, you know, I always say God, we are all created in in God's image, and we're all wonderfully created, um, but all of us have such unbelievable different strengths and abilities, and um, 
I grew up with learning disabilities, and it was a really, you know, struggle. School was a struggle, and all those things were tough on me. And thank the Lord that, you know, God's hand reached down and, and blessed me with athleticism because it's kind of how I got street cred growing up and, and going through, you know, uh, elementary school and all those things is that I could produce on the playground. So I was respected, even though I didn't really or couldn't really produce in the classroom. And and those things, you know, are, you know, you look back on that stuff and, and that was a big part of my development as an athlete is that's how I got acceptance is that I was a great athlete. And even, like I said, in elementary school, you know, there's no question who's getting picked first. And so those things were, you know, those were important in my development as I struggled with learning disabilities and dyslexia and some of the other things that, that were hard for me to kind of overcome as a student. So that part was, that part was really big, but loved Alaska, loved growing up there. The summer times are unbelievable. And, uh, obviously I, I grew up in a time where there weren't video games to, you know, to draw your attention. We just played. That's all we did. And I just think there's so much, um, there's so much value in that. And we played everything, you know, from basketball to, to baseball to just, you know, playing kick the can all summer. You know, we just did whatever, dodgeball, all that stuff. And you developed as a more well-rounded athlete growing up. Of course. Now, what attracted you to football, though, the most? You know, I I love, uh, obviously, I just love the game. And I think more than anything, um, growing up, there's, you know, you get the morning game and then the afternoon game. And the Pittsburgh Steelers, my growing up in the 70s, you know, they were the team of record, the great team with the steel curtain and all those guys. And they always were the morning game. And usually Cowboys were the late afternoon game. And so I'd get up early and watch the Steelers play. And then we would go to church. And then the rest of the day was spent outside playing and goofing around. So I became a real huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And that's where I grew my passion for the game of football, watching the Steelers with all those great teams with Terry Bradshaw and Franco Harris and Rocky Blyer, Lynn Swan, John Stallworth, Mean Joe Green, Elsie Greenwood, Jack Ham, Jack Lambert, Donnie Shell. I mean, I was a huge fan. And so that's where that passion developed. And I watched them play the game. And from the time I was a little boy, that's all I ever wanted to be was a football player. And I wanted to, you know, be a Pittsburgh Steeler. And so that was kind of where that passion developed. Um, one of my great childhood memories is when I was a kid, um, my dad took me to Seattle to watch the Steelers. This was late in their run, probably 1980, play the Seahawks. And um, we stayed at the hotel and we got autographs and guys that, you know, walking through the lobby were kind of enamored with me because I, you know, guys would find out I was from Alaska and I'd get an autograph. And some of the guys would say, hey, well, where are you from? I'm coming down from Alaska. And everybody was, everybody wanted to fish. <laughs> so guys were like wanting to fish and hunt. So then I became like this. I'd be in the lobby and guys were like, hey, hey, you, you kid, come here. And so I'd be in a group of guys. And, I, you know, the funny thing is, my dad grew up in New York City, 112th and Broadway. We didn't fish. I grew up in Alaska. I didn't know anything <laughs> about fishing. But, you know, I'm I'm trying to carry on conversations about the Kenai River and everything else with these guys. I'm just totally blowing smoke because I have no clue. My dad never took me fishing. 
Uh, <laughs> we just worked around the house. So um, <laughs> it was kind of funny, but that's how, that's the, that's, I, I still have in the room I grew up, my childhood room, I still have all the autographs hanging up there. My mom framed them all for me. So really cool, just a really cool event for me in my life and cemented, you know, my passion and my, my want for um, being in the NFL. And that was your, obviously, some type of driving motivation. So when you get to Idaho, though, were there other schools that be- recruiting you before you got to Idaho? I mean, how did you get to uh, Idaho, of all places? Right. Well, you know what? I, there was a summer football camp, and two schools came to that camp, Idaho and Hawaii. And, you know, so we go through this whole kind of summer thing. And it's no, there's no pads. It's just shorts and T-shirts. But... um you know, there was no question that, you know, I was a tall kid, a big kid, but, um, you know, gifted athletically. So I just got on the radar of those two teams that came up to Alaska, put on this camp, and they're like, huh, this is interesting. And then my coaches sent out film, and those two schools are the two schools that offered me scholarships. You know, it's funny because all the Pac-10 schools at the time, Washington and Oregon and Washington State and Oregon State, all asked me to walk on and, um, you know, to, to be a quote unquote walk on, but it was the Vandals and, and University of Hawaii, um, that offered me scholarships and I took trips to both of those schools, but I was just like, there is no way I think I could walk or wake up every morning to sunshine. I was just like, you know, I need some sleep and some snow and some rain and some nastiness. And that's what <laughs> I grew up in, in Alaska. And I was like, I like Hawaii is a great place to visit, but there is just absolutely no way I could wake up every morning to see sunshine. I think I would go nuts. Too many distractions in Hawaii? Is that what you're saying? No, I just was like, I like, I don't think I can handle the weather. Okay. I was like, I can't handle sunshine every day, man. I need, I need some winter time. Yeah, you needed some seasons. You're coming from Alaska. That's, yeah. that's way too much right. sun, right? <laughs> now, at that point at Idaho, then you eventually are drafted in the tenth round of the 1989 mm-hmm. draft, which is one of the great drafts in NFL history. When you look at who was selected in the the top ten, there you have multiple. Hall of Famers there, was it really a reality for you to think that you would actually make it in the NFL? Because historically, somebody drafted that late, they don't even make the team, let alone become a pro bowler like you. Yeah, you know, it was my thought was, listen, if, if I get in, if I can get myself to that point, um, then the only way I wasn't going to make the team is if I wasn't good enough. And I think, you know, ultimately, I just didn't want to have any regrets. And so I just felt like if I got cut because I wasn't good enough, I could live with that. So, you know, I was going to fight and do everything I could to get in. But, you know, there's two things that are interesting kind of about my story is, one, I was actually retired from football as a junior in college because of all the injuries um, that I had at the University of Idaho. So... The, the university retired me. They said, that's it. I, uh, had six knee surgeries and then I, um, I dislocated my elbow in a game and had to have surgery on my elbow. And at that point, they just said, Hey, you're such an injury risk. And you know what? We're just going to retire you and we'd like you to come join the staff and coach and all that kind of stuff. And so I was actually retired from football for about four months 
And as I healed, as young young people do, you know, I just started annoying the staff, the coaching staff, and the um, and the administrators to that you know to let me play my last year, my senior year, and basically saying that you guys owe this to me. And um, and I was just a nuisance essentially. I was up there every day. You know, if you ask Keith Gilbertson, my head coach, he would tell you a story about me throwing him up against the wall. Um, the man that I play, I don't know that that happened. If it did, I don't remember it. Um, <laughs> I could have been, I could have been having a crazy moment at the time, but was pretty passionate about at least finishing on my terms and, uh, ended up letting me play. And I made it through the year healthy and I actually moved to, uh, back to the offensive side of the ball. So, you know, I had been playing some defense up until that point when I got retired. So anyhow, it was a new position for me and all that. And so, um, but back to my roots of an offensive player. And even after I made it through my year, my last year healthy, I mean, I had switched positions and nobody knew who I was. I played at a small school and I had been retired from football because of injuries and all this, that, and the other. And interestingly enough, I had a great teammate by the name of Marvin Washington who went on to play about 11 years in the league. And, um, and one night I don't have an agent. I don't, I mean, I have nothing. And Marvin calls me up and he says to me, Hey, listen, man, you know, uh, the Bengals or I don't know who it was, but such and such a team is going to come work me out tomorrow morning at the Kibbe Dome is where we, you know, trained our facility, um, at, you know, 7 a.m. He goes, why don't you show up to my workout? And so I did. I showed up to his workout. I introduced myself to the scouts that were there, the coaches that were there, and I just begged people to let me work out. And, you know, that probably happened 20 times over the course of that uh, of that kind of workout period. Marvin would call me up. I would show up to his workouts, and on and on it would go. And the crazy thing about that, two things that are, are kind of crazy is, one, Marvin kept inviting me, even though in the workouts I'd blow him away in everything. I probably cost him three rounds in the draft. <laughs> he was supposed to be a top three-round draft pick, and he ended up going to the sixth round because I'd run a better 40 and have a better vertical jump and have a better bench press test. And I'd go through all these drills, and people would be like, oh, my goodness. Like, where where were you? How come nobody's ever heard of you? And it was because I was hurt. Like, my whole college career, I was essentially hurt. And so, anyhow, I ended up getting on the radar of several teams because of my workouts and um, ended up getting drafted in the 10th round. But one of the coolest parts to this whole story, how it comes full circle, is that after we won a world championship here in Denver in 1997, uh, 98 Super Bowl, the Green Bay Packers, uh, Super Bowl 32, I'm in the training room after that game. This is month, month and a half later, whatever it is. And I'm, you know, just doing my ice down and I just got done lifting and all that kind of stuff. And Mike Shanahan comes up to me and says, hey, we need to add some depth. You know, we're prohibitive favorites and we need to add some depth this offseason. And I want a defensive lineman that has versatility and duality that can play inside and play outside. And here's a list of guys that we're looking at. And he gave me this piece of paper and had about eight names or six names on it. And the only name I saw, my eyes just gravitated right to it, Marvin Washington. So I said, sign that guy. I go, sign him. He's a, I go, he's a Bronco. Sign him. And so Mike goes, okay, good enough for me. And he goes back upstairs. We sign him, you know, a couple weeks later. He's, he's signed, sold, and delivered. And then Marvin and I went on together in 1998 season, um, 99 Super Bowl to win a world championship together. So like from, from not having a job 
from not having an agent, from my career to being over, to Marvin making a phone call because he loved me enough and, and we were teammates to invite me to his workouts to 11 years later winning a Super Bowl together. That's an amazing story. Isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that cool how that worked out? Yes, that is absolutely amazing. If it wasn't for Marvin Washington, you and I would not be having a conversation today because I would have never played in the NFL. Well, I was going to ask you, what was going to be plan B if there was no NFL for you? Well, I had, I, I was always a good player and I, uh, and I was always a student of the game and uh, I played nose guard. I was an all-conference nose guard as a freshman and and I played DN, and I played outside linebacker, and I played center, and I played guard. I mean, I played all over the place. So the University of Idaho had already offered me a job to coach. So I, I, I would imagine I'd have gone into coaching, you know, and I'd have joined somebody's Keith Gilbert's staff, and um, you know, I'd have bounced around with Keith, and uh, who knows what would happen. But that's probably the direction I would have gone in. And now, were there ever any thoughts of? retiring after that Super Bowl 33 that you mentioned go out just like John Elway did. You also got to win a Super Bowl on your birthday. It seems like it would have made perfect sense to just ride off into the sunset. Yeah, no, I mean, I like, I think your body tells you when you can't play anymore. Um, I always loved the challenge of playing. I love the challenge of going out and, and being hurt and being injured. And going out and playing well anyhow, um, you know, there's an old saying, you you, you got to play hurt, but you can't play injured. And I say baloney, you got to play injured. And on top of that, you got to play well injured. Otherwise, they find other people to take your job. And as hard as the competition is between you and the other team that you're facing, um, there's this internal competition that goes on between you versus you. And your ability to go out there and compete regardless of how you feel you know, is is paramount to having success. And I always looked at that as a real challenge. Um, I mean, I had a game that I played in on Monday night where I was checked in the hospital on Sunday, had surgery Sunday night to remove kidney stones, you know, had to take morphine shots just to urinate, and then got out of the bed at 11 o'clock the next day, checked myself out of the hospital and drove down to the stadium and started a game against the Raiders that we beat them 27 to nothing in. So those are things that a normal human can't make themselves do that football players do on a routine basis. And I always took a lot of pride in being able to will my body to do things that it shouldn't be able to do. And and I've always felt like that's my responsibility, that every guy on the team is, and, and the people in the staff and everybody else are, are why I play and are more important than me. And, and so that was always kind of my attitude and one of the reasons that I was always able kind of answer the bell, even when I probably shouldn't have been playing. So where do you think that comes from, that ability to answer the bell, even in those type of situations where you're really hurt? And how are you able to do it where a lot of other people, they just can't do it, as you mentioned? Well, you know, I, I just think it comes from several different places. One, you know, I was just raised to be tough and um, saw the work ethic of my father. You know, so many times, I see people, you know, that will say, oh, this kid grew up in an affluent community or affluent household and, and, you know, there's just not enough motivation or he's not tough enough or whatever, or he doesn't need football. I mean, I grew up in a affluent household, but I watched my father, I mean, work. 
to this day, my dad is, he'll be 79 in August. We just, my wife and I just went on vacation with my mom and dad. My dad is up every morning, you know, six o'clock in the morning. We walk six to eight miles a day. My dad is, he's 79, he can still bench press 300 pounds. My, my dad never stops working. He never stops moving. And I just learned work ethic. I learned how to work. Uh, we had horses from digging fence post holes and building barns and repairing things. My dad never, ever stopped working. And even when he had achieved what everybody thinks of as success financially and in the business world, um, that guy just, it was, he's, he's motivated. And, and yeah, if you met my father, you wouldn't think he had two nickels to rub together. But <laughs> the dude, the dude just works. That's who he is. And I just learned how to work. And I understood the importance and the value of work. And, um, and I enjoy working. I enjoy going to work. I enjoy grinding. I, I enjoy that part of it. Uh, and I, I think I learned it more than anything else from my father. Where was it more of a grind for you? In Washington when you first got in the league or when you made the transition out to Denver? I think probably toward the end of my career in Washington because I was suffering with some injury issues. More importantly, I had um, I had a uh, allergic reaction to a virus and um, I ended up losing the feeling of my arms and legs for, I don't know, three months. And it's called Guillain-Barre. And it was a real struggle because before I lost all the feeling, I was trying to play and I wasn't playing very well. It's like all of a sudden I forgot how to play. And I was getting my butt whipped. And that was horrible. Finally, I started losing all the feeling in my arms and legs and was in the hospital for a week. They're trying to figure out what's wrong with me. When they said, well, we think this is what it is because to diagnose it, it's a process of elimination. There's no actual diagnosis. You eliminate everything else, and you're saying, okay, this is what you got. Well, it came to, as a, to me as a relief. I was like, oh, there's a reason I suck. <laughs> you know, good. <laughs> yes. It just wasn't like, you know, like, okay, I'm really sick, but at least I have a reason. And so, you know, just basically being told, hey, your career is over, and you're not good anymore, and you're not going to be able to overcome this. And, like, like, that was a really difficult time because at the time, you have to understand the money wasn't what it is now. You know, I've been, uh, I was a starter as a rookie in the league and my salary was $45,000 and I was an NFL starter. Wow. So, you know, I wasn't making very much money. So at that point in time, I had a wife and, and three kids. And honestly, I, I, you know, I wasn't set by any stretch of the imagination. I was like, if this ends for me, what, you know, what are we going to do? So there was, that was a stressful time for us. And then, you know, free agency happened right after that. And I flunked three physicals. And I me, mean, it, was, it was like, oh, goodness. Like, you look at your career after six years and you think, this, this could be it. Like, nobody wants me. I've had injury issues. I can't pass a physical. Um, you know, I've been told by the Redskins that you're no good anymore and we don't want you. Like, that's, you know, those are legitimate issues that you go through. So long story short, by the grace of God, it worked out. I signed in Denver and played another six years. But, you know, it was a, that, that was a, a difficult time for us as a family. I can only imagine. Did you have any other options at that point, or was Denver the only one? Yeah, I, well, I failed the physical in, 
Chicago, and then I went to Indianapolis and failed the physical. Then I went to Atlanta, and I failed that physical. The doctor in the Atlanta physical said that I had the knees of an 80-year-old woman and he did not believe I could play in the NFL. And so, you know, that's not exactly a ringing endorsement. No, it's not. So, <laughs> so <laughs> anyhow, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have passed the physical in Denver had it not been for my offensive line coach, Alex Gibbs, who basically told our head coach, Mike Shanahan, I want to coach this guy. This guy I want on our team. And we just need to pass him regardless if he can play. And so had it not been for Alex basically putting that out there, I'd have failed that physical too. So, you know, it just is a matter of finding somebody who wants you enough to overlook the injury history and some of the other things and just say, you know what, we're going to roll the dice. So did that give you extra motivation to prove Alex Gibbs right? Uh, I didn't need extra motivation. <laughs> like, <laughs> you needed a I paycheck, be, right? <laughs> right. I, yeah, I needed a paycheck. I didn't need a, extra motivation. But, yeah, my motivation is is always just being the best I can be. So I just, like, I just want to play. And more than anything, I want to prove it to myself. Like, hey, these last couple of years in Washington haven't been real good because of injury and because of sickness, mostly sickness, that I want to be able to prove it to myself that, hey, you can still be a, a really good player in this league. So that was you know, more my motivation than anything else. Now, during your time as an offensive guard, both in Washington and Denver, we always hear these stories about quarterbacks giving their offensive line gifts for protecting them. So which quarterback gives the best gifts? <laughs> they all would give pretty good gifts. I mean, I've got a, you know, a bunch of Rolexes and things of that nature. Uh, John Elway, we used to have this great kangaroo court when I played in Denver, and we, there was fines for everything. And then at the end of the season, we would tally up the kangaroo court fines, everybody would write a check, and then we'd go out for a big offensive line dinner and <clears throat> spend, you know, a ridiculous amount of money eating and just enjoying each other's company. And Elway would always just come in and, like, give us 10 large cash. Here you go, boom. You guys did a great job this year. Go have dinner on me. <laughs> so, you know, it was just... It was awesome. When you got 12, 15 guys, you know, you can spend 20 grand uh, at a at a steak restaurant, especially when you got 12 or 15 really fat guys, and then you get a couple of uh, expenses, you know, $600 bottles of wine. Uh, you know, you can spend that money pretty quickly. It adds up fast, right? Right. Now, at the point of your career where you're contemplating retiring, what thoughts were you at that time about broadcasting? Was that something that you were intrigued about and it was made it easier to for you to actually retire from playing? No, you know, it's interesting. I had pulled my knee my last year in training camp and I had a big raw bone-on-bone spot. And they cut it out and uh, had a big cyst, or not cyst, but a big bone spur. So they cut it out and uh, I missed a couple weeks of training camp. I came back and played in a preseason game and, you know, played really well. And um, the the first game of the season, they wanted to rotate me with another young guy just because, um, you know, they wanted to make sure that they were managing my knee. And I was like, I don't want to rotate because if I stand on the sideline, I'm done. So if you want to rotate me, you just got to pull me at some point in the game. So, and they understood it wasn't from selfishness, it was from, like my body won't allow me to do that. I either got to play the whole game or 
you know, I played three quarters and then you pull me in the fourth. Anyhow, long story short, I played the whole game as per usual. And one of the very last plays of the game, we opened up in St. Louis and we ended up losing that game. It was like 38-41, greatest show on turf. And, uh, and anyhow, I hurt my knee like the very last second of the last player game. I got a cotton in the turf and I knew it was kind of going to be a problem. But I woke up the next day and I was like, oh, I wasn't really surprised. It didn't hurt as bad as I thought it was going to hurt. And so I'm like, oh, I'm all right. I'm all right. And, you know, Wednesday I got in a stance and I kind of tweaked it a little bit. And I was like, uh-oh. And Thursday I felt a little bit better. Friday it felt better. Saturday it felt better. Sunday rolled around and I was fine. And I was playing as well as I had played at any point in my career for the first three or four games of the season. And I really thought, like, at that point, that was year 12, and I was like, I'm going to sign another three-year deal. Because I'm playing that good. And every week, my knee became more troublesome, and, and I just started, uh, it just got so bad that I literally um, couldn't block guys. I mean, I'd be blocking somebody, and instantly, like, my knee would just kind of give out on me. So it was a real, I mean, it was a really tough thing. And I think for most players, at least for me, and I think this is true for most players, when all of a sudden you realize that you can no longer tell your body, hey, we're going to cut this up and you're going to get through this, and your body just basically says, uh-uh, and quits on you. And when you start to look at yourself and go, man, and this was the biggest thing for me, is I felt like I'm more of a hindrance or a liability than I am a help right now because that's how bad my knee was and that's how bad... I was playing. And at that point, for me, I was like 12 years and I feel like I'm letting my team down. And that was gut wrenching to, you know, as hard as you're working, as hard as you're trying to feel like you're the reason, like you're letting everybody down. That was, uh, that was, it was just too tough. It was really hard on me. So at that point, I was like, oh, it's time. And, um, I had a couple more surgeries during that season trying to get back on the field. And my knee was just so raw. And, I mean, on my left knee, I've had 15 surgeries. So it was just so raw and shoot up and beat up. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, the, the doctors were just like, dude, there's like, there's nothing we can do for this knee. And um, at that point, it was like, well, it's time then. And as far as media is concerned, I had done some local like radio stuff and some local TV stuff and I had goofed around in some of that stuff and and so I didn't really think about doing anything I just I just you know basically actually when I've retired I told my wife you know I was going to take a couple of years off and then I was going to figure out what I was going to do that lasted about 2 weeks and I kid you not we joke about it today but she was like if you don't find something to do, we're going to get divorced. You're driving me nuts. Like, I'll admit, I'm, I'm like the world's neediest person. So, um, I can be a bit of a handful. Um, I just, I, I need to work. I just need to do things. And so I think I, you know, obviously inherited that from my father. So after two weeks of retirement, I was like, that's it. I got to find something to do. And, and, you know, just been blessed to, to have an interview with ESPN and, Went and interviewed and, and they hired me. So the rest is history. I've been doing that now for the, the TV stuff now with Fox, but between ESPN and Fox, I'm going to my I think, 18th or 19th season covering the NFL. And so why did you leave ESPN to go to Fox? 
Well, because two things, you know, the, the atmosphere and the things at ESPN were changing dramatically. And, um, and, you know, I just felt the writing was on the wall. My contract was up. And with Fox, they, they were just starting out or they just started out with their network. But they were going to give me the chance to do something that I've wanted to do um, ever since I was a boy and was never going to get the opportunity to do at ESPN, and that's called games. And I always felt like, you know, I could give a unique perspective and um, and always felt like I could be good at it. But ESPN has Monday Night Football, and they were never going to let me do Monday Night Football. So I uh, to, to be able to have that opportunity, there's two places you can go. It's CBS or Fox. And, you know, Fox gave me that opportunity last year to call games, and it was a dream come true. It was absolutely awesome. Well, there's no doubt that you'd be able to give a unique perspective calling games. And speaking of unique perspective, and now that you're a dad and a granddad, what words of wisdom have meant a lot to you that you share with your kids, grandkids, and that that you'd like to share with us? Well, I, I think, you know, one thing that inevitably comes up when I'm speaking, I do a lot of corporate, you know, speaking around the country and um, kind of motivational talks. And one of the things that always seems to come up is, hey, you know, you're busy, blah, 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 traveling around, do this, that, and the other. Um, you know, what did you do to spend quality time with your kids growing up? And my my answer to that is pretty standard. I was like, anytime I set an hour aside to spend some quality time with my kids, they do something to piss me off. And then it's no longer quality time, right? I mean, I'm taking them to McDonald's, and next thing you know, they're fighting, and orange juice gets spilled in the back of the car. So my big thing uh, as a parent, as a grandparent, was to be involved. It's quantity time, not quality. Because in that quantity time, there are going to be slivers of quality in there that you'll never, ever, ever get back if you miss those opportunities. And, you know, you'll never regret missing a quarter of a game or whatever to go out and spend some time with your kids. I coached my son, first t-ball team when he was four. I coached him all the way through high school and watched him pitch in the major leagues. You know, I, I mean, coached all my daughter's soccer teams. I made time. I was always present. And my big thing was I was never going to let somebody else raise my kids. That's my responsibility. And so the big thing for my wife and I was we just wanted to be involved. And, you know, you don't do everything right. You know, I mean, there's plenty <laughs> of mistakes that happen. Yeah. But well, the one thing my kids could never come back and say to me was you weren't there because I was always there. You know, I, a long time ago, I quit watching the Hall of Fame induction speeches. Because I got so frustrated. My wife's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, These, every guy was like apologizing to their kids for daddy not being there. And I was like, you know, but daddy was busy playing football. I was like, baloney, you chose not to be there. Like that irritates the heck out of me because nobody was any busier rehabbing injuries and doing what I, you know, doing, um, doing football stuff than I was. But I was always there. I chose to be there. And you have that choice as a parent. You can choose to be involved or you can choose to not be involved. And I always was involved. I mean, I would drive home, ice bags on both knees, ice bags on my back, ice bags on my elbow, and there would be a five-gallon bucket in my catcher's mitt sitting in the middle of the front yard. And I would pull into the house after a day of practice and go, well, looks like I'm going to catch a bullpen before dinner. You know, because my son was like, you're catching a bullpen. And, hell, my son's 31 years old. I caught a bullpen last night. Now, 
I don't do it at 60 feet, six inches anymore <laughs> because the last time I do that, he hit me in the chest and I, I swore I was going to have to have a nipple reattachment surgery. Uh, <laughs> he hit me with about a 95 mile an hour fastball square in the chest. So I quit doing that about eight years ago. Uh, when I catch a bullpen, it's from about 110 feet. <laughs> he still throws in the mid nineties. So, but, um, you know what? Like I said, those, those are the things I remember more than anything else. Listen, I got introduced in three Super Bowls and I got to trot out there and, and those are amazing times and amazing accomplishments. Um, I consider that garbage for the first time I got to see my son pitch for the Arizona Diamondbacks in the big league, uh, big leagues versus the Atlanta Braves and the, uh, and he, you know, he three up, three down. And that was the most thrilling moment of my sports career. Without a doubt, it's not even close. Were you more nervous at that point or when you played? Oh, I'm, it's not even close. I'm so much more nervous even to this day. And my son is, you know, still trying to play. And, and uh, he's had some injury issues and, and everything else here in the last few years. But, uh, you know, he's unsigned right now, but he's looking for a team and, you know, he's still working his butt off to, to make it happen. I don't care if he was pitching against the blind sisters of the poor. I, I'd be far more nervous watching him pitch than I was ever doing it myself. Uh, it's still to this day, it, it eats me up inside. Like, I, I always say this, this is a funny thing about if you go to a baseball game and sit in the family section, it is so easy to pick out the parents and, and family members of the starting pitcher, the parents and the family members of the everyday players. And the parents and family members are the relievers. Because at the beginning of the game, the parents of the starting pitcher are chewing their fingernails. There is not a soda. There's not popcorn. There's not a hot, there's nothing around them. They are locked in. Everybody else is just kind of hanging out. The parents and the family members of the everyday players, they got popcorn, hot dogs, sodas, beers, you name it. They don't care. Guy strikes out four times out. We'll get him tomorrow. And then about the fifth inning, Around the fourth or fifth inning, you can tell all the parents of the relievers because the necks start to crane. And, like, I can literally pick out my son in a bullpen in the major leagues. And, like, a lot of times they have it meshed out, you know, with a dark mesh on the, on the fence. And it's high enough that you can't see the players. But the bottom part of the fence is open. So there's about a three-foot gap there. And I could pick out my son just by his walk. Like, oh, Daniel's up. How can you see? I can just see his feet. Like, I can see his feet. I know what he walks like. Yes. Like, and then all, about the fifth inning on, the parents of the relievers are beside themselves with angst and necks are just craning all the time looking at the bullpen. Is my son up? Is he warming up? Is my son coming in? Um, yeah, it's, it's gut wrenching, man. It's, I hate, I, that part, I always, I always joke around with my wife. I wish Daniel could just be on the team, but never actually get in. That would make like that would just, that would make my day. It'd be like, oh, this is so re- relaxing. That's so much easier, right? Yeah, exactly. That's right. Well, how are the knees holding up on your walk right now? I'm good. Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm. They don't bend really well, but in my little range of motion, you know, from about not quite straight to about 85 degrees, I'm good. So walking and doing that kind of stuff, I'm fine with. It's just. uh you know, my running days and that kind of stuff are over. Well, Mark, or hopefully I can call you Stink from now on. You're actually yeah. the, the first person from Alaska that's been on the podcast, and I greatly appreciate your time, sir. 
It's all good, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Mark didn't just persevere on the football field and in games. He also has done it in life by focusing on his family. And one of those ways was by being intentional to push through any type of challenges so he could spend a high quantity of time with his family, which inevitably led to that precious quality time. And it doesn't matter how many titles he's won in football because that time with his family is the true measure of success. Now that finishes episode 61. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. 